So, um, what so, sort of kiln do you want to talk to people about your kiln repair experience? Well, okay, so we can talk about that. Yeah, so welcome to the ceramic, welcome to the ceramics podcast. I'm Cami Plamaco, and this is my co-host Gustav Gusto Hamilton. Hamilton, hey, hi, people. Never call you Gustav. Everyone knows that. <laughs> do I even have to say it? No. Oh, uh, so, Cami, what's wrong with your kiln? So, okay, um, I was firing my kiln. Uh -huh. It got to 1130 degrees and the alarm went off and uh -huh. I wasn't there, but um, my intern was there and she texted me, the alarm went off, is going off and I was like, hit stop. And so she hit stop. And then I said, is the alarm off? And she said, yes. Okay, great. So then she went back to the studio the next day, but I didn't, I was working. So um, she texted me and she was like, your kiln is at 1130 degrees. And I was like, still? <laughs> like 24 hours later just held at 11 30 and i was like oh i was like um hit stop and then enter dude that is crazy though so she hit stop and then enter and i don't know that it stopped and then texted me a couple hours and said a couple hours later three hours later and said it's still at 11 30 and i was like oh shit hit the breaker yeah so she hit the breaker and um it's just the elements like i don't know because i bought it used the woman who sold it to me said she probably fired it 150 to 200 between 150 to 200 times which is the exact amount for the elements so i knew that they were going to go i just didn't know when yeah and so but I, uh, <laughs> Sounds I mean, like I control the problems too. But the the thing about it is, like, I only know from talking to you, and like, I've never actually done electric kilns. Like, yeah, I always fired gas kilns in school, and then the only kiln I really fired on my own is like a test kiln, which plugs into the wall. That's so crazy. I know. I so, was so excited to tell someone as you were leaving that you used to be a professor at Pratt and you don't know how to change kiln elements. I don't know how to do it because I never had to do it. The assistants always did it. Yeah. And Dude, that's, actually that's the, the real, that's the smart move right there because you move to a position of power. I am stuck in ceramic janitor mode where I'm just going around fixing people's. See, I know. Yeah. And look who's going to make all the money. You are. <laughs> Kimmy, I think you got other. I think you got other problems with that kiln. If it's just holding there and not shutting itself off. So I might have a problem with the relay, right? So That's it might not problem. even be. So I just bought new elements anyway because I know that I need to do that. So that was three hundred fifty-two dollars, and then I think well, I'll probably get relays. Get relays and get a new thermocouple. Yeah, it's probably. I actually had changed the thermocouple. Okay. But before, but I think I hit it and maybe it got loose. Um, I don't know. So maybe I'll order that shit. I'm a couple of like 12 bucks or something. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to be fine. It's just like the, it's actually stressing, not knowing how to do something is actually stressing me out because I actually know how to do almost everything myself. And so like the, not, the unknown is actually pretty fucking painful. I know. So... 
kilns though are really cool because um once you get in you know once you get past like the elements and the relays and the thermocouples and that kind of stuff i don't know how to fix anything on it like if there's um you know something wrong with the controller like i would i have no idea what i'm doing but all the other parts on it are so basic that if you just follow like you want to go slow and be careful and take pictures and label things so that you don't mess something up but it's really cool because it's kind of like working um like i can't work on an old car but i can like barely work on like a small motorcycle or something where you can just you know you just like follow the gas line and right. then like make sure it's fl and it's kind of the same thing where like you just you follow the power and like you just label each thing before you pull it out and they're really easy to work on they're just kind of daunting because they are going to go to like 2000 degrees later <laughs> it's crazy right like it's too much responsibility that little hot yeah. box yeah uh, I, you know and I, I still feel like i'm going to burn down the building every time i fire it even though it's probably not gonna not yet maybe we should like do a um uh like uh journal a uh, voice journal entry while you work on your kiln actually you, that's like, yeah let's talk do about it. what you're afraid of before you start and then <laughs> throughout while you work on it just like little snippets of what is going well and what's not i'm like i'm afraid i'm gonna have a loose wire but i'm also afraid of dying alone yeah yeah uh-huh okay okay <laughs> Uh, every time I work on kilns at work is uh it always starts off fun and I'm always like just doing my doing my work and then no matter what at some point I get pissed at everybody and everything <laughs> you're like you thought it was going to take an hour which is what you told me you were like it's going to take you an hour to change all the elements and I was like I was like, that can't, I've never done it before. That can't be right. And then like you texted me a couple hours later and you were like, it's going to take you three hours. Yeah. I was yeah. like, yeah, that still sounds wrong, but better. Yeah. Like yeah, even I know it's not going to take an hour. Yeah. It, but it should, you know, cause like you think about what, okay, all you gotta do, you gotta get in there, pull the old elements out, stick the new ones in, crimp them probably, or hook them up to the bus bar. Bang, slap that bad boy closed, you know? There's nothing to it. But it <laughs> I don't even know what I'm talking You're like halfway through, and then you start to go to vacuum your kiln out, and the vacuum bag's full, so then you gotta empty that. Then you can't find the new ones. So then all of a sudden, you're trying to clean out an old vacuum bag. <laughs> then you get that done, you start vacuuming, you chip one of the fucking bricks while you're vacuuming, so then you gotta cement the, that section of brick back. <laughs> like, it always such <laughs> big. Yeah, you you finally get done, and then you can't find one of the wrenches, and you have to start taking the kiln apart to try and find the wrench inside the kiln. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I haven't done that one yet, but that'll probably happen next. All everything you just said is real life. Like yeah. you think it's gonna be like get you're gonna get your own kiln, and it's gonna be like the glory, yeah, the glory of having your own kiln, and really it's like a nightmare. Like your studio is like a thousand degrees, yeah. like. The P, you know, you your environment is rusting, and you're yeah. not even out. It's not even outside. And then 
like you think like well is this too close to the kiln everything is too close to the kiln and then the studio is too small because you're in new york city so there's not there's not even 12 inches around the kiln on every side and then you can't even trust that it's gonna go off so you have to fucking go like even though a computer runs it in the computer i don't know if it's smarter than me i'm not sure and yeah. then that thing just like fails because you're like you count on it you're like it's just gonna go off by itself and then it doesn't and then you're like oh shit what else so could go wrong all of a sudden you're sitting up you're on citizen app at four in the morning trying to scope out if there's any like fires being reported yeah, and then your electric bill comes and it's like two hundred dollars over because it ran for two 24 hours straight the person oh, that, that I shared the studio with, they, um, they are one of the people. They, uh, in the, like, two years or maybe two and a half, yeah, two years that I've been in that space, I think they've fired the kiln twice. Um, so they just leave the lid on it open. And, oh, my God. And then they show up to fire it, and it's full of a year's worth of dust. That's, I mean, <laughs> I don't even leave mine open crazy. overnight. It is crazy. It just pumps like dust smoke into no. the. Thing. No, dude. No, also, that's so they, dumb. They also don't put shelves in their kiln. They just fire directly on the soft brick on the floor. I don't even want to know who this person is. Like, I want to send like a, I want to send an e a cease and resist a cease and desist email. Well, I tried to I tried to talk to them because I was just trying to be helpful. I was trying to be like a ceramic advocate and cause I could see that things just weren't going well. Um, <laughs> but I didn't want to be, there's so many like, and we've joked about like ceramic curmudgeons on here. Like I didn't want to be like ceramic curmudgeon know-it-all that's telling some person that they're using their kiln wrong, but they are using their kiln wrong. <laughs> So if you're listening, if you're a studio mate of Guts and you're listening to this podcast, get your shit together, dude. We're just at, I'll help you. I'll show you where the timer is on your kiln sitter. That was the first one. I just tried to, I tried to politely like let her know that she forgot to set the timer, but I didn't want to reset it because I didn't know if she was doing oh, something yeah, weird, right? you know, like I, I didn't know. know. I thought maybe she was doing something, but she just forgot to set it. So she kept trying to fire it and the kiln just kept automatically shutting off. Wait, uh, Nadine Sobel is your studio mate. <laughs> yeah. Different one, different one. <laughs> Not uh, maybe. That would be so embarrassing. That would be awesome. Yeah. No, Nadine knows her way around a kiln sitter. Of course she does. But that's really, it's really, you know, it is, it is annoying when someone tells you what's what. Yeah, you know I know. What I mean, like if somebody was like, you forgot to set the kiln sitter, I'd be like, no shit. I see that I fucking did that. Yeah, I know, but she kept trying. Oh, Jesus. The dust thing is just not a good look. Yeah, the dust thing is crazy. Yeah, I'm like really concerned about my dust. Yeah. I hate being on the elements. It's really annoying. Yeah. Um, what's happening with you? Running a factory. Okay, so for those of you who don't know what Gus is talking about, because this is the second time that you've mentioned the factory on oh. this podcast. Yeah, because oh. you said before you were starting a table-making factory. Oh, Wait. the table-making factory, that got pushed aside. Okay, so yeah. you actually started, we started a real a, factory. We started a dinnerware line. Right. 
Brooklyn Clay did. Um, Sarah Allwine. It's and your I, designs, right? Sarah and I, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I made I made like the first piece for it a long time ago, um, and then Sarah like designed an entire line based around that. Uh, yeah, and it looks really really nice. Like I didn't think that I would be so proud of. Like it just kind of it started as like a fun thing, and then a lot like a year ago, a restaurant in the neighborhood reached out and we were trying to make some things for them. And then we made a couple things. We made some cups for like a coffee shop up the street and it was fun. And it seemed like it was really interesting and it was nice, a nice change of pace to um, just be like trying to figure out how to make this stuff work. Um, but then at some point in the fall, I guess, like last fall, we started like figuring out these designs that we were just really both Sarah and I were really into. And then she like took this first plate and just like made like, so we went from like one kind of like halfway design plate to like a salad plate, a dinner plate and a dessert plate and now a pasta bowl and a little soup bowl. And they're really cool. So she's Sarah's Sarah Allwine's making all of them. Right uh, on the jigger on the jigger and then we're glazing them all firing them it's really it's been really fun and it's been <laughs> I, I learned so much i mean i was really going crazy i even at the start of this past week i like had i had a dream because i just every time i glaze like a big batch of it i just get really nervous so i woke up in the middle of the night and for some reason i thought that the plates were in my bed with me oh my god and that they weren't like I always sleep, I, I almost always like wake up and my bed's like eerily the same as from when I got in it. Like I like don't roll around. <laughs> and and I woke up and there were like pillows on the floor and like my comforter oh. was like wound up. And I and then I remembered I had this dream where I like had put the plates in bed to keep them safe before I fired them so that I wouldn't chip the glaze on them. Right. But then I woke up in the middle of the night and I was like, shit, I forgot I put the plates in here. I got them out before I chipped the rims. <laughs> Whoa, that's like a real stress dream. You're like, you're like protecting your plates at all costs. Uh-huh. I love it. That's yeah. like, that's some real, that's like a real commitment and pride and love. Yeah. Yeah. And also but maybe it, a little yeah. over. Yeah. It's a little messed up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. I actually, I've seen the, I've seen from the beginning, it's been about a year from the beginning of yeah. the designs. And then you basically like made a jigger and then you learned how to use it. Yeah. And then, I mean, it's been like what you've done is just like pretty, yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, it's um, it like other than just like the work that I make, it's like the thing that I care the most about and like have been the most excited about um like in such a long time it it's been really cool and it um yeah like jen who owns brooklyn clay was just up to let us like chase this thing down and start slow and um like it kind of just started as like a weirdo like hobby thing when we had time and sarah knew quite a bit about it already Right. She had worked for a place called John O'Pandolfi, 
right. which does jiggering over in New Jersey. So, so she wait, like, really quick before you go on, can you, we, we should just say what jiggering means. Like, what is it? And why, yeah. do, why do it? So, um, jig, so they talk about like jigger jollying and they're jiggering and jollying are just like opposites of the same thing. So, um, the base of it is a, um, you have a, a, a mold that's either the, um, the face of a plate or the foot of a plate, the bottom of a plate, right? Um, or a bowl or a cup or whatever form you're working on. So it's either the, you have a mold that's either the inside or the outside. And then you have a blade that's attached to it, like an arm that articulates up and down. And the blade it matches the profile of the other side. So um, right. the mold's the outside, the blade is the inside. And it's all set up. The real ones are set up on these like big industrial wheels, but ours just hooks up. It's made by Shimpo. It hooks up to a Shimpo wheel. And you just like swing the blade down by hand and press it into um, clay that you put inside the mold. And it just like shapes the piece. So the mold spinning. Yeah, it's really cool. It's, I think it's like an 18th century thing or a 19th century thing. I don't remember. But yeah. um, they don't really use it much in industry, but there are quite a few companies like John O'Pendolfi um, in New Jersey uses it and East Fork uses them. Um, there are others, but it's, it's cool. Like it's a nice, you can really make a lot of stuff on them. So Sarah, fast. super fast, yeah. but it, it took, you know, just like everything, like every time I try and find some like fast shortcut in ceramics, like you learn that they're just, there are no real shortcuts in it. Um, so like we can now, you know, Sarah can make easily make like 12 um, like plates in like an hour and a half or something in the morning, which is, which is quick. But, um, you know, that took like, it took like six months of like testing right. clay bodies and like forming techniques and clay consistencies. And because um, so the first the first like project that we did with the jigger when we bought it was Anders and I made a set of dinnerware for our sister. And like, we just had to make like twice as many plates to get half, half of them looking okay because they warp so much and they right. were cracking. And, Cause they're not being compressed really. Right. Yeah. So there are all these just like little techniques that we had to like just test throughout the, throughout the time. And it was, um, I mean, it was really slow at times, like figuring out the best ways to make it. And, and there's just always something like, so then I spent a bunch of time testing glazes and um, the glaze, we finally got one that we were like really happy with. And then all of a sudden we had all these like application issues. So wow. we've kind of finally worked our way around that. And then we were like messing around with firing schedules a little bit, but um, yeah, ceramics is just a real pain. You know, there's like, there's so many ways for it to go wrong. Well, that brings us to today's podcast because we talked on the last episode about mason, about white mason stain. Yeah. So we, of course, got Keith Simpson on the line yeah. to talk about what is white mason stain and why, why I should use it. Yes. Yeah, because he's the expert on all materials yeah i mean he's just our ceramic expert like 
He's like the Supreme Court of ceramics. <laughs> That's so controversial. <laughs> so here's Keith talking to us about some mason stain. Well, the Hamilton brothers uh, showed up in matching outfits today. Oh. Oh, yeah, the Hamilton bros. Yeah, they like... Yeah, it was an accident. Was it like a Mario and Luigi situation? (laughs) No. I wish. It was just the exact, just, like, exact same color, (laughs) olive green pants, and possibly Uh, the exact same t-shirt. Same same black t-shirt. I've been dressing more like Francis. Um... Like, like onesies and that kind of stuff. <laughs> no, like he he actually wears real clothes. But, oh, cool. um, like I think that uh, dressing him has made me like more interested in using color in my clothes, like putting clothes on. I, I have worn basically these gray sweatshirts, gray t-shirt, and like blue cat blue blue pants. Oh yeah, for years. Since and since I've known you at Pratt like eight years ago, that's been wonderful. probably. But it's it's kind of it's always been nice to like not think about that when I go to put the clothes on. So I just really have a uniform. Doesn't matter if it's a work day or like <laughs> Sunday. Actually, like if I'm if, you know I'll put an Oxford on if I like have to talk or something. But like mm-hmm. other than that, it's like that's the uniform. Uh, yeah, I almost put but, a button-up shirt on today, but it felt too. I don't know. Felt like a rough say, transition. You like put it on this morning, and you were like, "Yeah," and then you were like, "Oh, nah." I actually, I did. I put it on, and then I was like, "No, nah, it's too, it's too much." That's really cool. just for today. Maybe tomorrow. <laughs> it's you're. It's too administrative. Yeah. It'll ruin your reputation. Yeah, I mean, if the pay's not there, then why bother? <laughs> <laughs> Oh how have you been? So what we wanted to know, um, Gus and I were talking about white mason stain. And um, I think it's a situation where it's something that's really cheap, that's marketed to be really expensive. And it's really just super packs. Yeah, so white mason stain. Um, I've never seen it. I guess I'm aware that it exists. So mason uh mason is a brand name right yeah right um mason is a brand name of ceramic stains and it's the most common stain company probably in the united states um and they sell some white stains and right <laughs> they sell some white stains You're, right? yeah uh-huh. i mean yes but i think mason's it's important to say that it's like company because like it is like commonly just used as like glaze stain we just say mason stain yeah. Whereas, like, it could be right. any manufacturer, right? It's like saying Q-tips. Exactly. Yes. Um, but they sell some stains. And on their website, they have a reference guide. And that reference guide will tell you what oxides are in the product that they sell, which a lot of companies won't give you this much information. So it's really useful. So they sell uh, some stains that it, they say they're tin whites, and they sell some stains that they say are matte matting whites. So they promote matteness in the glaze. So as soon as it says matteness, it triggers this like thought. What else triggers matteness in a glaze? Alumina is what 
triggers Madison and Glaze, right? Primarily, anyway. So those probably have alumina in them. And then um, the reference guide also states that the non-maddening ones are zirconium and silicate. So they're zirconium silicate. And they they may as well be zircopax or superpax or ultra. Oh, wait, it says that they're tin. Well, no, there's there is a, there is a, <laughs> there is one. I think there's one that has zirconium, silica, and tin. So it would have okay. all three of those in conjunction, right? Um, my yeah. idea was that they took some white stain and put a little bit of blue in it to make it seem like it was a whiter white. Oh, well, the ones that they market as white ceramic stains do not list anything else in them uh, except for zirconium, silica, tin, and alumina in the case of the one that's matinee. Um, so but you definitely could, but like also, one thing interesting about the mason stains is that um, they're, uh, they sell, they don't sell as many stains as they used to. And so instead of selling you the stain, they'll give you the components to blend. So the components to blend will actually be maybe three of their stains and then a zirconium opacifier and you'd blend those powders together to get a stain that they no longer produce or get something that's similar to it. Um, and all those recipes are on their website. So if you buy a smaller catalog of their stains, you can use that reference database um, for, for those ones that are available as components to blend to get like other colors. But also like, why not just like blend them together however you please to make other colors, right? This is so crazy. Um, it's great. It's insane. I, actually, Keith, that's too much information. I just was like, I just was Do we like, want to start over. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Wait, no, I want to. I want to plug uh, the Alfred Grinding Room's website. Brooke sent me a link to the, all the Mason samples fired to cone ten. I think. Yeah. So we 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 made a visual kind of spreadsheet for, or like a visual guide for all of the stains that are in stock in the grinding room. And it, it's a good visual reference for a lot of stains. But one thing that's kind of problematic is that we have stains in stock that are no longer produced. So we have stains made by Pemco and Faro and other things. And once those are gone, they're gone. We can't get more of them. But um, the guide indicates which ones are commercially available and which ones are not. Um, also, the glaze, the glaze guide uh, has, I took a pictures with my iPhone. So almost every single picture has got a reflection of me and my phone in it. Oh, cool. <laughs> and the color is also slightly corrupt because my phone case was yellow and it's reflecting that back. That's but so it's a pretty good guide. Yeah, and it it's, also shows you which... Do you want to see, do you want everyone to know about that? Or is that something that's just um, proprietary to... Alpha no, it's a public you... website and you could use it. It really is for students to pick out stains in the grinding room. But if it was useful for anyone, it's available as a PDF. And you... um, Cammy and I started talking about white mason stains because I've been trying to make this white glaze for such a long time. And... I just had this thought that like, what if the white mason stain is, it's like 
it's the new lead or it's like the new uranium. Like it just makes the most perfect, most beautiful. Like you just put a little bit of white mason stain in it and you've got yourself the most beautiful white glaze with no metal marking. Uh, He's looking for some Holy Grail shit. <clears throat> yeah, I found, that's what I I found some. I found some Holy Grail shit. Yeah. Um, and I think you'll like it. So uh, our friend Corey Brown yeah. told me about, about these. I'm sorry, my phone ring is on. I'll turn it off. It's okay. But um, apparently you can purchase opacified fritz. So fritz that are already opacified. Um, and that might be your holy grail shit. Yeah. How do so I get you that? Could call, you could call up Fusion Frit and you could request... Um, you could rest, request their product in opacified state. So it would just be like you'd order the same frit that you'd normally buy, but they would opacify it. And that opacifier would be melted in with the frit. So it wouldn't be like a powdered material that was separate, but like it was melted in the frit and then the glass is cooled and then it's crushed. And that, that milky glass would be ground up into a powder. And that, um, that wow. might be your holy grail shit. Dude, okay, so wait, Fusion, <laughs> That's awesome. Fusion does that? Yeah, and I think Pharaoh probably does too. Yeah. Okay. Hey, so also know what? like all these companies, Mason, Pharaoh, Fusion, like they are run and managed by human beings. Yeah. And if you if you work a little bit, you can get someone on the phone and uh, they will talk to you. Like it's they, funny because like Pharaoh especially seems like a company that would never like it in my head because i came up really simple ceramic studio they seem like the nasa of ceramics and uh i would imagine that they wouldn't want to talk to me i can't tell you who to call right now yeah but um the person to talk to a year ago before he retired was todd barston oh and I just happened to end up on a plane beside this guy on the way to Enseca. And he gave me all these underglaze pencils and we, we talked about Fritz. We talked about the market and stuff. And I, I learned a lot. I, I want to go down there and see it, but I think you could just call him up and say, Hey, I'm from Brooklyn clay and I want to come see, I'm doing a podcast and I want to come see how Fritz made. Actually, yeah. like, Pharaoh's like, right, put, it's in my hometown. Yeah, it's so, Cleveland, right? Yeah, so we could like eat so many pierogies. Oh, Actually, cool. we but we should just meet there and do it. It'll be so fun. I'm there. Okay. Mason stains right down there in Ohio. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Or the Odin Orton. Orton Cone Factory. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And then Hall China. Ram presses. Yeah. Ram presses are made in. I think Hall China's dead. There, Isn't it? There's. It's on the. It's so weird because when I like. I Googled Mason to see where it was and Hall China's like on Google that it's there. But it's like Hall China's there and Homer Lachlan is there too, right around Yeah, the Homer's Homer Lachlan's gone. Yeah. Um, which which is also on the Google map. Like I think everything's gone. The company that makes our rolling pins uh that we buy uh can't make these giant rolling pins anymore because the like the factory that has the the, fir, the kiln for drying the wood to make these giant rolling pins broke so they can't make these giant rolling pins anymore how the big point. are the rolling pins 
you've, you, you know the ones that are all around Alfred. I think they're like 28 inches long. I have one. What are you going to do? It's like a big a thing. Half. I have one. I call them every six months and check in and see how they're doing and tell them that we're willing to pay more because there's just not the Thorpe rolling pins. Thorpe rolling pins are like the best rolling pins. And you can buy vintage ones off eBay that are that big. Um, but the rolling, it's a $60 rolling pin. And very few people are ready to make that investment. But when you do, like, it'll last you a lifetime. <laughs> okay. Keith, thank you for always always answering my phone calls and my text messages about Glaze. I'm sorry. I'm going to try to do it less and less, but I, I really appreciate the help. And uh, that's all the materials talk for today. Now we're back on to part two with Katie Coglin. So you have the shelf and then you're like, I got to get out of this one horse town. Well, I kind of realized there's like I, five horses there. Come on. <laughs> there's five. I realized I needed to sit, be able to save some money because at that point it had been like, I graduated in 2010. It was 2015. I, it was going to be 2015. And I like, I like needed to be able to live and I couldn't like pay my loans while I was in Montana even though I was working so much, like I just wasn't making enough money. And so my grandmother at the time who grew up, who lived on the third floor of my parents' house also was like starting to decline in health. And so I moved back to Brooklyn and took care of my grandma and worked for a year and a half. And during that time applied to graduate school. Okay. So where did you work when you got back? I had a bunch of different jobs. I have always worked in the service industry, so there's always like that. I was working at a brewery in Gowanus called Three's Brewing. I worked at another restaurant in Greenpoint. I Katie used to bike from Bay Ridge to Greenpoint. Yeah, 10 miles. What <laughs> restaurant in Greenpoint? Lasserie. It's like oh, a Yeah, yeah. It's really good. It's in the same building that Bobby Silverman has a studio in. Yeah, that's my old studio building. Yeah. Huh. And there aren't any restaurants between <laughs> there and Bay Ridge. That's why yeah. Katie had to bike 10 yeah, miles to get I, there. <laughs> um, and I also, as a truck driver, I had a truck route. I delivered vegetables from New England to Manhattan and Brooklyn. Yeah, I was going to guess that you had that job. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, she probably did that. I always assumed that you were a baker at some point, that you worked at like a bread bakery. Yeah, that Is that makes not sense. That's a dream that I've never fulfilled. Someday. Someday. Uh, we can make that happen. I think I know someone that knows someone. <laughs> well, who knows? I might need a job after quarantine. So. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> womp, womp. I have, well, oh, you and me both. Maybe. maybe. Um. Thanks for, bumming, thanks for the bumming us out. So like, thanks for like bringing us back to reality. I was so fascinated by the, like, by the journey, the whirlwind of your life that I was like, I forgot about the pandemic for a moment. <laughs> I know actually. So did I. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So then you, you were like, I'm going to go to grad school, right? 
So where did you think about, like, where did you want to go? What, what happened? Well, I wasn't sure what to do. Being in New York that year, taking care of my grandma was really the most difficult time of my life. And I just was feeling like floating. I had no idea what to do. Um, so I applied to graduate school. I think I only applied to three schools and my closest friend from undergrad, like my studio, I call her my studio soulmate, Allison Craver. She was in grad school at Ohio State University. And so that's why I applied to go there so that I could like be with her. <laughs> um, cool. Where else did you apply? I was, I was looking at the professors. I, I applied to... I remember I had thought about applying to um, New Orleans. Uh, what is that? The school? LSU. Yeah, Louisiana State University. I had thought about applying there because um, Andy Shaw was there. Yeah. His pots. And who time. was, is that where Mikey Walsh is too? Um, I, don't, I can't, I think so, actually. I think she is there and she had just started when, when I yeah. was applying and then where I can't remember where else I applied but I knew that I wanted to go to a program that was interdisciplinary and I probably wasn't going to just make pots so that was also a big thing about going to OSU and I didn't want to have any debt from graduate school because I had so much from undergrad oh, um, good point and so OSU is like one of the best funded programs in the country for graduate school. Is it really competitive? I think, I mean, I think so. It's a good program. We, when I was there, we would have, I think we had like 30 applicants per, for the ceramic department a year. That's just that seems about, about right. I, yeah. And then, yeah, we had, we had Steve Thurston was there when I started. And so was um, Rebecca Harvey. And then we had a rotating faculty every year. So like Lauren Mabry came through, Ian Mears was there. And then we had one, we had. Did you have Eva Kwong? Oh yeah, Eva was there. She was telling us about it. She was telling Steve sabbatical um, my last year. We had someone else. Oh, um, I can't remember. Now his name, that's so terrible of me. But he was there my first year. And he had, been, he had gone there for undergrad and then he was like the visiting faculty my first year. Legacy. <laughs> yeah, I feel really bad. He's gonna listen too. We only get like three listens per podcast, but he'll for sure be listening. So... <laughs> So for those of you guys who are listening, for those two people that are listening, uh -huh. um, you should take a break in this podcast and go to Katie's site and check out her work before we actually start talking about her work because um, it's really important to see it. And they're like kind of big, you're like kind of working these big installations. So yeah, yeah and you kind of take over you know, the entire space down to like the thread in the costumes that everything's handmade, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so you, when did you start like making installations or thinking kind of beyond pottery? 
Um, I, I think I started doing that when I was um, in undergrad, actually. Like, because yeah, I remember I, I broke my I'm trying, uh, I'm trying to remember what you were making in Montana. I just remember you, like, you're making, like, these little pillow forms a lot, right? Was I? I thought so. I thought you were making, like, closed, like, like little slab-built pieces that were sort of, like, pinched. I don't remember what you were doing with them, though. I in in Mon, in Missoula I had just learned how to hand build. I had just learned how to coil build. I had never coil built before. Right right I was in Red Lodge and I was I used paper clay a lot and um made sculpture out of like really thin slabs, but I had never coil built before. And so I had gone to watershed that summer for two weeks, right before I came to Missoula and um You skipped Maine. I'm sorry. I was only there for two weeks, but I learned how to coil build while I was there. And then that was kind of, that was what I was working on when I was in Montana. I had just, in Missoula, I had just like really been trying to coil build and I was building with porcelain a ton and porcelain so temperamental. And then Gus would, would be like building with red clay and be building these like huge structures. And I would be working on like three inch is of porcelain and it like not coil building properly and then one day I tried building with red clay and I built like this like three foot tall like sculpture and I was like holy shit like this is amazing and yeah. then I realized why Gus had been able to build so fast yeah you're like holy shit Gus actually isn't good at hand building <laughs> <laughs> it's not talent it's just he, dumbed, he dumbed his way into it yeah <laughs> material well, Katie, I got to see you do an artist talk not too long ago, and you showed that image of you from grad school where you're holding that like lo really large pinched vessel that like obscures your body. Mm -hmm. And I remember you talking about that like being a big moment in your work. Yeah, that was kind of where I started to transition um, my thought process about my work because I didn't really know what I was making before that, and. I started making work that relates to the body. I actually like, I love that question. I love that question. Um, like what is the, what is the piece that sort of changed the direction of your work? Like I feel like all artists have one and nobody really like talks about it in a way that's like, you know, I was doing this, but then I just like happened upon making this thing. And then all of a sudden this like, whole new landscape like a whole new world and i i think when you're making it you don't necessarily realize it that it's happening and then like two years later you'll be like oh this is this was the point where everything switched yeah right yeah so but you but okay. you didn't know while it was happening no but it was the first it i had been making this one form like these three foot tall like phonograph forms I had made like six of them and I didn't know why I was making them just because I liked the curve of it. And um, then I was, I fired, I think only three survived and I fired them and um, I was walking down the hallway carrying it and it on my hip. And my friend was like, Oh, it looks like your body's totally distorted right now because it looked like there was a hole through my stomach by the way. <laughs> 
carrying the, the form. And then that was kind of it. Then I started thinking about the body. And I think maybe it had always been there, but my grandmother, when I came home from Montana right before grad school, she had two, two amputations within three months of my return to Brooklyn. Whoa. And so she became completely bedbound and it changed like her life, obviously, and then life of my entire family because she lived on the third floor of the house um, and sh she needed 24-hour care. And so then everything in my studio practice, I think, related back to her and this experience of like appendage, um, vulnerability, space, not having space between my life and my grandma's life and like all of these overlaps. So when I was like 25 in New York, it was, I, it was like such a different experience for me than for every other 25 year old I knew at the time. Yeah. Okay. Do, so do you think that like you, uh, cause lately you've been like focused on pieces that are like performance based. Mm-hmm. Do you think that relates to that time as well? Um, I don't know if the performance does or what happened, like how I got into this weird, weird world, but um, I think the work still kind of relates to that time. Yeah. Away. Okay. So I know that, um, I know that Anne Hamilton teaches at, OSU sort of. Can you mm -hmm. just talk about that? Because I'm like yeah. a huge, like since I was, because she's from Ohio. And so yeah. she would have these big shows around, you know, in, in sort of the Rust Belt when I was in college and I would drive like hours to go see a show of hers. And, you know, because her work was like amazing. Um, like next her level. Yeah. And her, you know, her, as, she, as her career got, you know, went on, her pieces got bigger and bigger. And I feel like they sort of got so big that they sort of got like she, she as the artist seemed further away, but I remember her like younger, like just fresh out of grad school work. Yeah. I remember that work just being like so powerful. And Wait, you know, what was it like then? I mean, she was like, you know, a lot of her work was about craft and about home and about women's voice and like hundreds of women's voices in unison. And, you know, um, you know, like materiality of like, she'd like, you walk into a room of beeswax and the smell would be like overwhelming or you'd walk into one of her rooms and it would be like a hundred birds. Yeah. So there was like, or like all this like denim or all these pennies covered in honey or, you know. Yeah, her work's super visceral. And one of the things that I really appreciate the most about her pieces is everything is contextualized and thought about and considered in relationship to the space, the history, the people, the clientele that are there. Like every aspect of the work is really considered. It's a huge operation. Um, so I, I in, one of the greatest things about the OSU program is that Anne and her husband, Michael, are there. And so they're part of the graduate program and as a first year in, in the program, you have a seminar with the, just them where you go out to their studio once a week and have these discussions and readings. And <laughs> yeah. cool. it's amazing. And yeah. then they also organize like three times a semester. They'll have really, really, really famous 
smart, thoughtful people come and give a lecture at the Wexner, which is the art facility at OSU. I think it's the largest, one of the largest ones in the Midwest. Um, it's a museum. Uh, well, I guess it's a gallery and not a museum. It's a gallery and uh, like a performance center and like it's just yeah. huge. And so the artists who Anne and Michael would invite would then give a lecture or presentation and then we, we would go out to Ann and Michael's studio and have like a 200 person dinner with that artist where they would answer questions after. Yeah. It's really created this amazing community. And um, because Ohio is kind of a, a a desert for art, the arts, like it's not like New York. So Ann and Michael were kind of spearheading that community that exists I think in larger cities did let did Lex Wexner pay for all that stuff like who was paying the bill Ohio State mm -hmm. yes I mean the school is like ginormous um yeah it's really big the, the unfortunate thing is the sports is the focus of the university and they make a ton of money and none of that gets put back into like the other departments of the school so like the art department was struggling because the finances were constantly being cut yeah i think that's the story of a lot of schools <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. so there was like a ton of issues financially within the department whereas like our university is a top research one like university and huge and there's so much money being made and that money just goes back into the sports yeah um it's a really like a really big it's a big 10 school so the sports is huge like yeah i didn't it's mean, crazy i didn't like know who the buckeyes were before i got there i had no idea <laughs> it's crazy my my students were like flabbergasted <laughs> can you buckeyes don't matter outside ohio <laughs> <laughs> oh, katie we're gonna get we're going to get letters. We're going to hate mail. <laughs> Do you think, can I ask you a question? Do you think that um, crafts is different in the Midwest than anywhere else in the country? Like, do you feel like the Midwest has like a love of craft that happens, that doesn't really happen anywhere else? Yeah, but that might just be more like rural versus urban. Yeah, maybe. Um, because, I mean, like, that's how I think of, um, like, Montana, especially having, like, such deep craft roots and, um, like, you know, ceramics is really big out there. But I also just, I feel like I, so many of my friends out there, even, like, young people were into, like, quilting and were into, like, um, like cross-stitch and, like, all of these things that, um, I don't know why they fit into life better out there maybe it's i just like slow yeah <laughs> i think there's more time um i think that there's more time once you pass pass philadelphia yeah that's the, maybe. that's where it changes over yeah it's like it's a kind of a fun it's fun to think about like why it's fun yeah i i think i think there's like i think that there are like i this like t time exists in different ways and like New York time is so different than than Ohio and then like Columbus time or something and there's just like more space 
mentally to like work on those things, like work on building or like work on weaving. Or to like sharpen a hatchet for a yeah. while. <laughs> You're like, I'm going to sharpen this hatchet. It's probably going to take me eight or nine hours. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like, I'm going to work on this quilt. It's probably going to take me like six or seven months. Yeah. For like, like your output is like maybe two quilts a year. But so Katie's, may- bringing, Katie's bringing that light to Brooklyn. <laughs> well, my, my mom already, my mom and my grandma already had that here. So that's where I get it from. I asked Katie about somebody's quilts one time and she's, she didn't say whether or not she liked them. She just said like, I have really specific ideas about quilting. Something <laughs> to that extent. Whoa. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, do we want to know what do you want to talk about it? Well, <laughs> uh, the quilting. I mean, I'm not a, qu- I'm definitely not a quilter, but I, I think my levels of, what I expect craftsmanship to be are really high, like really, really high, which is why I still, I've tried to get over this, like have an issue with this idea of sloppy craft because I think it's somewhat insulting. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, well, I guess this is over. Yeah. <laughs> well, this was talking, fun. Talking to the two of us. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. Um, I'm sure I'm like, it's good enough. <laughs> but I also think like our, 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 you're good enough of like, oh, it's good enough is like way higher than a typical standard of what it should look like. Well, yeah. Yeah. No. So. We- we all have our like levels of what good yeah. enough is. Like, I'm totally kidding. Like, yeah, kind of. But Katie, like, I hadn't seen you for a little bit, and then I saw you and got to see your work at Enseca in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. And you had this like really beautiful performance piece, and I got I like showed up in time to catch the performance, and then stuck around long enough to like chat with you afterwards, and also just like like really look at the objects up close and it was it was really um like all of a sudden I was like oh shit like Katie is like a real like she's really doing something um <laughs> like just the the level of finish that was on everything and like um you know you had like really choreographed this performance piece and it was um yeah it's just like it's funny I to like see your friends like just like grow into like real serious artists all of a sudden. Uh. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of like a good way to talk about like your attention to detail because you know, you, I think that attention to detail also takes time. Like you can't get that attention to detail without putting hours in. That's just the way it goes. Like, how did you, like, how did you start with this? I'm thinking about your thesis piece mm-hmm. where you, I think, I know, I don't even know how long it took you to, yeah, I mean, it had to take forever. It took, I didn't decide what I was making, like, really working on from my thesis from until after, after the break, like, after winter break. And then my thesis was in, in um, March. So... That's quick. Um, three months. But what were the hour, like what was your average per day 
Oh. Hourly. I was not I was not sleeping like more than five hours, I don't think. I I was like really neurotic in graduate school. Um, and so my friend, I feel like I like I know I like to have a good time. I like like party, I like to drink beer, I like to relax, but in graduate school I never maybe three times that I drink more than two beers a night. And like like if I was like I was in school to work, like that was what I was doing. And so my the amount I don't know, just the amount I worked was insane, just like everyone else in graduate school. But yeah. Um I wanted it I wanted it to be a specific way. And so when I have a bit I have very I don't really draw much or do much sketching, but the vision in my head that I have of what I want my work to look like is like super, super precise. And so it takes me a, many iterations of something to get to that point. And then with that thesis piece, do you feel like you got, like, did it meet your expectations? Oh, no. No. <laughs> the piece is, like, beautiful and exquisite. And so we're talking, like, you want to describe it so because of the so podcast? Yeah. So for my thesis, which I graduated in 2018 from graduate school. So two years, um, two years, wait, it's 2020. Yeah. Two years ago. Um, and I made a durational performance. So I worked with five dancers and a choreographer from Ohio State University. So some undergraduate dancers, some graduate school dancers, and then a choreographer who was in, who had previously graduated from the grad program there. And they have a really amazing dance department, which I got to know because I, I, I in graduate school, you're required to take a lot of classes outside um, your medium and like you have all these requirements to meet. So I took a lot of dance classes um, and it was right next to, to the art building. So it was really, they're really close together. Um, so I had a 30 minute durational performance that had five different objects or like um, a, um, instruments that were orchestrated by the body. And each dancer had a specific instrument and task and movement to do for the whole performance. And the, they, they were made out of ceramic, the instruments? Or were um, they mixed materials? There is mainly three main materials of ceramic, cloth, and wood. So clay is like always where I start with my work, and it's like what I've been trained in. So I've been working in it for almost 17 years now. And um, it's like the thing that's the most comforting and, and the material that I love the most. And associate myself with the most but fabric and sewing have now taken on this whole other aspect in my studio practice that's almost equal to the amount of time I spend in clay if not more I might spend more time sewing than I do working in clay at this point um I feel like the piece had like sort of a dystopian like look about it did that was that something that you were trying like a feeling that you were trying to get like it was like past and future at the exact same time actually well i'm really interested in this in this idea of craft and these this way of working um with materials and materials that are familiar to people so like i worked with flour and there was like a um one of the tasks was a like a 
person to be walking and sifting flour the entire length of the floor of the performance space. And so I kind of think about these materials that have always been used and try to take them into a new format. And this like dystopian idea, I think definitely came from the costumes were all the same and they were white. And I work in, in, in tones of white and off-white and beige and like the brightest color is like an earthenware color. Um, <laughs> but it, it was meant to be like a really well run, like a well-oiled factory, kind of like an orchestra, how there's like one person that starts it off and then sets this whole thing into motion and it kind of becomes a cacophony, like after a while of like all this, sound and noise happening so my piece didn't necessarily have that in the sound aspect but it had that in the movement of it and it and i associate it with like how um a household operates so it was kind of situated around my mom and my grandmother and just like all these tasks that you do in your house with your family to like survive and live every day that you don't necessarily think about as being important but like make the whole world go round essentially a lot of it had to do with laundry folding laundry that was like i feel like that was the main part of my childhood like putting the laundry on the line we had three clotheslines like in my backyard <laughs> that's so many clothes that's like that's like an obscene amount of clotheslines. How many kids were there? Yeah, like there? how many brothers? You have one brother, right? No, I have three siblings. So oh, okay. I have one brother and two sisters. But at one time, there, there would always be eight of us in the house, like growing up, because my grandparents lived upstairs. And my mom d doesn't really use dryers for her clothes because she likes hanging them out and, like, saving electricity. And so there were three clotheslines majority of my childhood in the backyard and there would always be clothes we would have to take down and take off it was like the one task that was like almost like a clock like <laughs> that's crazy it was like the timekeeper like oh, okay god take the laundry and oh no it's raining like did you pull the clothes in like i don't know so it's <laughs> really funny i mean that's like so kind of like those one of those anachronisms of like you know, even for New York, but even outside of New York, but definitely in New York, when you find yourself doing some kind of old timey thing, you're like, oh my God, like what, where, when am I living? Like yeah. what year is it? Yeah, I, I think that is what it is. Like I grew up with my mom and my grandmother baking constantly. So like that sense of material and like the, like making for the home was always a constant in my childhood. And I think that like just permeated its way into being an artist, like permeated everything I do in the studio, just like it should be handmade and it should be made well. <laughs> My grandma's idea of perfectionism with her baked goods, she, just was never, she was never satisfied. Okay, it's, so. Like an art, it's like a practice, it's like a studio practice. You're like never satisfied. I love that. That's like real, right? That's yeah. like, that's what, you know, having like any kind of pride in what you do. Yeah. Um, okay. So where, 
like what i mean uh hold on what like so you graduated and then what happened well i had this very crazy end of my graduation so i had my thesis exhibition i had two performances scheduled um one was before the actual opening of the like the thesis opening and then one was on the day of the opening and so i had a performance at night and then the next morning i woke up and my i had a lung collapse on my way to class the next morning like what like what do you mean i was <laughs> i was walking to school like to my sewing class and i just um had a really terrible sharp pain go up the right side of my chest and down my back and like i bent over i couldn't walk it was like such a strong sharp pain and i bent over and i thought like that's really weird maybe i pulled a muscle or like i had gone out drinking the night before i thought maybe i was like weirdly hung over because i had just celebrated my thesis um and then I went about my day, I like taught class and then the next morning I went to a critique for my other, like the other ceramic grad who was in school with me, Elaine Boos. And um, then I got home and I couldn't like really breathe. So I called my mom and I was like, oh, I feel weird. I can't, I'm having a hard time breathing. Like I'm just going to take a nap. And she was like, no, you need to go to the ER right now. So I went to the ER. I drove myself to the ER and then they told me I, they scanned me and I had a lung collapse and then it proceeded to get worse as I was in the hospital. They had put a stint in and it didn't reinflate the lung. And so then I ended up having lung surgery and I was in the hospital for two weeks. Like, and then, and then I begged, 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 begged for them to release me so that I could go to my thesis reception. And they did. I went right from, I went right from the hospital after not having showered and having lung surgery in two weeks to my thesis reception on a on a chair that had wheels on it because we couldn't fit the wheelchair in the car. <laughs> oh, that's so, so crazy. crazy. Yeah, it's really crazy. So then I had to take a leave from school and I didn't finish my thesis writing until the summer. So I didn't technically graduate till the end of that summer. And I was supposed to go um, be moving to Seattle to do a residency at Pottery Northwest, but some things happened and like, I decided emotionally that, cause then my grand, my, my lung collapsed and then two weeks later my grandmother died. And I just needed emotionally to like be near my family. So I ended up coming back to New York. I mean, thank God you did because that's how we got to meet. I know. I know that's that's how I feel. Um, yeah. So then, so then you started work like, and so now you're in New York and you're just like making this shit happen. Yeah, I'm trying to. It's really hard here. You're doing great. You're doing great. <laughs> Thanks so much. Yeah, I mean, I feel like you're doing just as well as Gus and I. And I feel like if we say we're not doing great, then it's not good. If we say Katie's doing great, then that means we're also doing great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's true. It's like, yeah, kind of great. yeah, I was, I was working full time and trying to have a studio practice. And thankfully, Brooklyn Clay exists. Um, and that's where like my clay community comes from and also where I can fire my work, which is really important. And your studio yeah. now is yeah, so my studio is in the front half of my apartment. 
So it's mainly a sewing studio and I make small cl clay works there, but if I make larger things, I just make them at the studio at Brooklyn Clay because they're so generous with their space and time for the teach. You guys, this was okay. so fun. Okay, yeah, thank this you was really so fun. much, Joa. Thanks for thinking I'm worthy for the podcast. I well, really I'm going to cut it, cut your interview down to half an hour. <laughs> A tight so, 15. So tight wish 15. me luck. <laughs> So Katie's work is um, incredible, and everyone should check out her website and her Instagram. Her website is katiecoglin.com, and her, her Instagram is um, K-C-O-U-G-H underscore L-I-N. Right. Go check her stuff out. She's making great work again. Her, she, talks, she talks to, like, she was mentioning her craftsmanship a little bit, but like it's next level. It is crazy. It's she lives in a dimension that only like people with either Adderall or a deep sense of patience can do. Or both. Or both. Go look her up. And special thanks to Keith Simpson. Always. Thank you, Keith. You know how we were just needed like five minutes with Keith? Yeah. But we recorded for like two hours? Yeah. It was so sweet. Can you and then we, <laughs> we couldn't use any of it because it was the shit talk sub chat. Can, can, you, can you just put some of the highlights here at the end of the episode? Oh, that's an excellent idea. I'll do it. Okay. Well, uh, everybody go follow the Ceramics Podcast on Instagram. Uh, subscribe however you do that and uh thanks for listening like we all kind of know a lot of the same people and if you show up to uh to a to a party with ceramics people and you have like a couscous salad you know lisa or pot you know it's kind of like you brought lisa or along to the party <laughs> Like, how did you get that pot? Well, like, she's my bro, man. I was down in Austin, and she kept throwing these things at me. It's got a ball sack on the side of it. How the school, like, as much as it has put me th tens and thousands of dollars in debt, like, I've also, like, developed these weird relationships with people, like, who are all over the place. Relationships oh. that you would spend tens of thousands of dollars for? That is really the question, but. Who's the older brother? Me. You. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't know that, though. Well, Anders, I've barely met him, but he doesn't seem to talk as much, so he seems smarter. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> that's really, that's yeah. really funny. <laughs> that, might be, that, might be, that might be what we used to sign off at the end of the podcast. That was, that's one of the better oh things. Gosh, that's I'm been sorry. Said on this. I'm yeah. sorry that he hit you with a truth bomb so late. Yeah. Come on. Oh, uh, no. All right, I'm really going to leave now. It's nice. You guys yeah. are the best. Thanks, you so guys. Good. See Bye. you later. Bye. Bye.